myself. Do I need to repeat myself? So we'll be in this room together for uh, the next two hours, about. And uh, Jennifer's going to be with us offering uh, a song for us, as she will every afternoon. <laughs> and then at, uh, after two hours, we're going to go have our final hour outside. So uh, if you need to use the facilities before then, just slip out. We will not ha be having a break before in the next two hours. And uh, I'm dependent on feedback like most systems. So if, you, if I, uh, I ask you, you nod. Is that OK? <laughs> I didn't study systems, self-organizing systems for nothing. Feedback is essential ingredient of life. Okay. And I would like to, if that's possible, for those of you on the floor to come a little closer. Just uh, slide your, uh, because. Uh, I'm accustomed to uh, be closer to the people I'm working with. That's great. You know, different cultures have different distances that they're comfortable conversing with. Uh, my, uh, my personal tendency is uh, more Mediterranean. I like to be up close. So if uh, you can imagine then talking and engaging with someone for another one, I get up start talking and he steps back and I step forward, we can cover quite a bit of ground. <laughs> so this morning in her opening remarks, uh, Anna invited us to arrive that this would be a day of arriving. And that already helped, helps us relax. Did you feel that? <laughs> and, um, and that requires that, that arriving a certain quality of attention and of patience. In today's world, we are driven, we're hurried, we're distracted. So much is happening all at once. So many communications, the speed of them, the ease of them, in our pockets, in our purses, that we're never out of touch with the people, rarely with the people who want to interrupt us and reach us. <laughs> and so we get to have, there's a quality of uh, just an edge maybe, a frenzy, you know what I'm talking about? 
Yeah. And this, uh, it's a certain, it's a current of excitement, but it's uh, stresses. And we are coming from that into a situation without distractions. We're coming from that culture of frenzy to a situation without hurry. And a culture where even without opinions, our opinions about things are, don't matter. We're asked to focus our attention on this simplest sort of mind-boggling simple things like breathing, like uh, lifting your hand, taking a step, observing your mind. When is there ever time or inclination for that? in the lives that we lead. And so where this arrival can be, uh, feel, we can feel a little at sea because we are accustomed to this drivenness uh, by all that's expected of us and all that we expect of ourselves and all that we're taking in, deluged with information, with requests, keeping in mind so many people and their schedules and what we could do. Uh, if we could draw a map of each of our lives, any one of us, it could look pretty crazy, reaching out here and there. And now we step into this place with a bunch of women we don't know. And... Uh, Buddha in the hall and Jesus on the wall and, <laughs> and we're asked to uh, sit down and shut up and close our eyes <laughs> and nobody's walking in with a birthday cake or anything. It's just there. Yeah. So I just want to uh, share my own awe at, at, at what uh, this practice uh, asks of us and what it gives us. It kind of strips us down and it invites us into such an adventure of simplicity. with the very same mind that is so good at responding like a fire alarm to do a thousand things at once, multitasking, and we're supposed to sit here and feel our breath. So what I find great about this is how it polishes this most remarkable gift that the world deprives of us of is the gift of attention. When we're running so fast and doing so many things all at once, 
And I don't even know if multitasking is possible or it's just jumping between different tasks. But we are uh, in this situation where we can find again the sweet, good gift of paying attention to the simplest things that we have taken for granted, that we do all the time and don't even think about. Like how the air is passing through our windpipe and filling our chest and how it's causing the abdomen to rise and fall. And we can get uh, fascinated by this. So please get fascinated by it. Relish this use of attention. Attention is the most The capacity for it is perhaps the greatest gift that has been given for the human mind because attention gives us our world. Attention gives us our our self. Attention, when you hang in with it, turns into something suspiciously like love. And we crave that wholeness of attention, I think. If you think so too, you can nod. (laughs) So yet, I just want to play in this Uh, put in a plea in this arriving time. Uh, Even the weirdness of it is so sweet to allow yourself to get curious and fascinated by the sensations. What is that? Oh, you feel that. We take it for granted, but it's something very interesting. Get, get fascinated. Sound. Thought. So if you can just stay so interested in, and with that attention of what's right, you won't, don't get carried away by it, because you, but you're looking at it as this most interesting phenomenon. And so you notice, you get sore, so you notice you might be getting sleepy. Well, when I get sleepy, I like to open my eyes a little bit. Tibetans do that. Zen practitioners do that. It's an okay thing. It brings a little lightness into the mind. When you're walking, get intrigued by that. So many things to pay attention to. The stepping. Ooh, moving the foot. Look, oh my gosh, my weight's going over here. Oops, and there I step. And the weight is shifting. And then the next, you can break it down into these uh, 
habitual movements and with your uh, curiosity, it hooks the mind, if, and not hook isn't quite the word, but it brings you to that uh, simplicity, nakedness of presence that we miss so much in the outside world. It's a gift of, it, it opens us, that simplicity opens us up to the gift of being alive. <coughs> and in that, that simplicity underlies, that simplicity of attention, keen attention, underlies the basic teaching of the Prajnaparamita, the mother of all Buddhas. And we can find that we can let our, we get so interested in this basic phenomenology of experience, the raw givens of experience, that we don't need our stories and we don't need our opinions and we don't need to be scolding ourselves. Which our culture is very good, our Mainstream culture is very good at getting us to do, in case you haven't noticed, scolding ourselves. That sense of not being up to the mark, of not being all you want to be, is a main driver of late-stage capitalism. I will not deliver that lecture right now, however. <laughs> but it belongs here. <laughs> so uh, I would like to now turn to uh, the perfection of wisdom, the mother of all Buddhas, and um, tell you uh, the story of my uh, how she came into my life. It was 50 years ago. She didn't come that fast, but it, I, 50 years ago, I encountered the Buddha Dharma. And that was because I was uh, going with my family, three small children, and to India with my husband, who was on the staff of the American Peace Corps. We were there two years. And in the course of those two years, I found myself as a great blessing in the company of Tibetan refugees. They had not, it had not been long that they had, since they had escaped from Tibet walking out over the Himalayas. Everything they brought with them, they carried with them in their height, heart minds and in their hands. And they were, it was the first years of their trying to survive in a culture that was so foreign to them. 
in the heat and the, with the um, exposure to diseases they had no antibodies for. And so, along with a couple of Peace Corps volunteers, I got, mainly one, I got involved myself in working with, and they're still close friends, the community from Eastern Tibet that I uh, found myself called to be with as much as possible because their way of being human fascinated me and filled me with an excitement of showing me, it seemed to me to show me another way of being human. Even though they were hungry and sick and uh, often divided, scattered, orphanage here, institution there, road gang there, and they were losing their communities. And so I was working and often I'd bring my children with me up from Delhi where we lived to up in Himachal Pradesh near Dharamsala, not far from there, to work with the Tibetans. And that's when I began to say, what is this path? What is this religion? What is this Buddhism that seems to have so many different faces and cultures and yet based so remarkably in the teachings of this uh, Indian from the Sakya tribe two and a half thousand years ago. And I began to read a little bit. But I, the, although I was growing very close to the monks and particularly the Rinpoches of the community that I was serving, I didn't have the, I'll say it, not just the nerve, I didn't have the gall to ask them for teachings because they were so tired and so having to deal with so much to care for their people and their, so what I did was uh, and that was also just, I can remember, 50 years ago, I turned to a Tibetan nun. So you see how lucky I was. My first teacher, a woman. And uh, this woman was an English-born nun, Tibetan nun, uh, called Karma Kechok Palmo. And... Um, Frida Beatty was her non-Tibetan name. And she was, had been living in India for years, had been the first, perhaps I think it was the only uh, English woman to be jailed with Gandhi as a satyagrahi. So she was a pretty nervy lady. And um, she had created a school for up in the hills for uh, incarnate lamas or tulkus so that they could have food and some book learning from the older ones and uh, some uh, 
teachings that would give them a window onto the Western world, and many of them have become leading uh, Tibetan teachers in the West. So I, we all spent time up there with her, and I asked her, I remember what I've, how I felt. I was very nervous about it. Mommy, because uh, the Tibetans, they, they all called her mommy. Interesting. <laughs> mommy, I, uh, you know, mommy, I, I would just like some teachings. And she said, oh, my dear, that would be just the thing. So for her, just the thing was to have me repeat her life, which started, uh, her Buddhist life, which had started in, uh, with the Theravada Vipassana, Satipatthana was called back then, or in Rangoon with Mahasi Sayadaw. So although we were up there with the Tibetans who were doing all kinds of interesting practices, she wanted me to sit and do the kind of thing you're doing right here. I felt it was a little boring. <laughs> I could hear the rattling of trays as people did their mandala offerings and the thump of the prostrations, and I was supposed to just sit here and watch my breath and my thoughts. So you can identify with that. She was uh, planning to bring me um, through up through <laughs> the development of world Buddhism and, and, and bring me to the Vajrayana. But by the time uh, she got ready to do that, uh, we had our relocation orders to serve the Peace Corps in North Africa and West Africa. So I had to leave while still in this early part of her life. That was the best thing. I was so, uh, such a blessing for me to uh, be grounded in the practice that is bringing us together here. So I carried it with me to, to uh, North Africa, to West Africa. It was by myself. I didn't have Buddhist communities. I found I could go to Quaker meeting there and sit in the quiet and do uh, some practice. I'd practice on my own, of course, in a kind of slapdash way. And then when I, I became so fascinated uh, by the uh, this understanding of the mind and of the life itself that came through that, that I, I realized that what I wanted to do when I got back home, I had, had plans I was going to go to law school, and instead I went into graduate school 
for uh, studying uh, world religions with a focus on Buddhism so I could teach it, so I could really learn it as a scholar. Yeah. And in that time that I came back, that I was back here with my now growing family, they, the kids were in high school by, that, by this time, and I was in uh, getting my, uh, doing my doctoral work. Uh, it was uh, during this time that I uh, found um, the scriptures of the Prajnaparamita and was just, what as we'd say, blown away. Uh, the uh, freshness and the depth of what kind of blew, blows through her um, and the way that she, she, the way 500 years after the Buddha himself, Buddha Sakyamuni, how she turns the lens, so to speak, or the, the whole um, movement that speaks in her name about her, on, like turning the lens on that main teaching of the Lord Buddha, which is our interexistence. This was his major um, difference from all the other religions of his time, from Vedanta to Jainism to see all of it, was that uh, there was that this Beings and events condition each other and that the saving insight of it that, that you get in, in, through a meditation and a compassionate action is a, not that there's a power from coming down from a king or a god or any ecclesiastical institution. There's no top-down power in the universe, but that the power is interactive and reciprocal, that the world, natural world, and the mental world as well, self-organizes through relationships. I wish I could f knew a better way uh, to, uh, uh, to say that with less abstraction. But what happened was that uh, this insight that she brings through the scriptures, this mother of all Buddhas, uh, began to move through my activism, I became, when I came back, very active as I'd been before in the Viet to stop the Vietnam War, to stop nuclear power plants, uh, among other things, and um, found that uh, her uh, teachings in, were like... Uh, as I shifted into uh, 
because I didn't end up teaching in a university, but like a sailboat moving a little this way, and then the wind, because she caught my sails like a wind blowing. And, um, and I found that through, um, how am I doing on time? There's one little story I have to tell you to make sense of the rest. Are you okay? Am I talking too much? (laughs) What? This is why we're here. So, uh, right when I was in uh, my graduate years, uh, His Holiness Karmapa, who is the head of the whole. uh, Kargyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism, sort of just the way His Holiness the Dalai Lama is the uh, head of the Galukpa, the, His Holiness Karmapa is of the Kargyu, which was where my friends were belonging to that, and I'd known him there. So he came for the first time to America. Whoa, big excitement. By this time, there were more and more Buddhists in America. It was amazing. And uh, so there were great receptions for him and so forth. And I went to see him. And, um, and, and when I, uh, he asked me to come and talk to him because we met earlier and, and because I had an important person with me. It's always good when you are going to see a high lama, Tibetans like rank. Even though the mother of all Buddhas says rank doesn't matter, Tibetans love rank. And uh, I say that with great love. And, and uh, so he um, asked me how I was doing and what I was doing. And I said, well, um, Your Holiness, I'm following the scholar's path now. So I'd like a blessing on my head. <laughs> and, and he was sitting in his on a chaise long, and I leaned my head over uh, his lap. I thought he'd make a little sign over my head or something, wild blessing. And instead, he grabbed my head like a football, and he and <laughs> It went on, and he, I think it was a Manjushri blessing, and I felt this great charge go through my uh, whole my body mind, and I didn't sleep for the next three weeks. And so um, it was during that time when I went back to the campus. I was, this was at Syracuse University. I walked right into a seminar on uh, general systems theory. I didn't even know what systems were. But I attribute the fact that that changed my life, that I wrote my dissertation on systems theory and the Buddha Dharma to His Holiness's blessing. During this time, uh, 
and, it, and, and you all know we'll spend a whole day on this tomorrow, afternoon on this tomorrow, uh, the notion of the bodhisattva, that hero figure in, the, in Buddhism, the one with the boundless heart, the one that knows there is, we're so interconnected that there is no private salvation. If we're going to be work for enlightenment, it's all of us. And that felt so true to me. And I was so excited reading the Prajnaparamita scriptures where that was first expressed. And that, um, I think that maybe I'll just give you a few. Did, did you get the, uh, in the mail the chapter on my, I wrote? Yeah. Oh, phew, I'm so glad. No? No, which wasn't. Oh, it's called The Mother of All Buddhas. Well, somebody's nodding. Some are nodding. You got the call to life. What? Choose life. Oh. Oh, yeah. No. Well, some of you got it and some of you didn't. Uh, let me just read a few lines. See, you're just arriving. Now is the best time to hear it. As Buddha's world teachers, compassionate, are your sons. Oh, you, oh, blessed one, our grandmother of all beings. He who sees you is liberated. And he who does not see you is liberated too. Don't you love it? See, she's like that. I mean, if, if the Buddha Dharma uh, is beautiful for us, then it's beautiful for people who aren't Buddhas. And the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist anyway. So there's, she's always tripping you up. The Buddhas in the world systems in the ten directions bring to mind this perfection of wisdom as their mother. The saviors of the world who were in the past and who are in the now in the ten directions have issued from her, and so will future Buddhas be. She is the one who shows this world for what it is. She is the mother of all the Buddhas. And the Buddhas so love the perfection of wisdom. For she is their mother and begetter. She showed them this all knowledge. She instructed them in the ways of the world. All the Tathagatas, that's the Buddhas, past, future, and present, went full enlightenment thanks to her. And the, in the Bodhisattva's eagerness to learn and experience enlightenment, the Bodhisattva is likened to a pregnant woman, all astir with pains, whose time has come for her to give birth. He is like a mother ministering to her only child 
and his devotion to other beings. So there's this wonderful, um, emotionally charged, embodied, uh, life-loving sense of a wholeness of life that we're invited to experience in her. That she is someone who does not separate the world into the pure and the impure, the enlightened and the unenlightened, but that uh, sees it all with a gaze that is clear and uh, does not turn away. And so in one of the Buddha says in the, in the uh, scripture, he says, in thinking about this wisdom, perfection of wisdom, isn't the bodhisattva like a man who made a date with a handsome, attractive, and good-looking woman? And if now that woman were held back by someone else and could not leave her house, what do you think, Subhutu, says the Buddha, what would that man be thinking about? Oh, he'd be thinking about the woman, of course, Subhuta answers. He thinks about her coming, about the things they'll do together, about the joy, fun, and delight they will have together. Everything is in the bowl of experience that uh, the perfection of wisdom. At the same time that this teaching invites us to look straight on at the world in its grief and suffering without turning away, without even thinking of escaping from this world, without even thinking of going into uh, nirvana as some escape from this world that compassionate and clinical eye uh, of the bodhisattva that Prajnaparamita teaches is also one that invites this relishing of life's beauty. The whole thing, the full Monty, the whole business, whether it's the... uh, Joy in life and the dis- and what and our grief and seeing the destruction of life, it is here this fullness of existence that uh, sh- she is in- inviting us to. Well, it took a while for me, and I still am on the path of trying to see how I can be fully with my world. Uh, But a big moment for me uh, was, um, I remember it, I had uh, gone through a period of tremendous grief for the planet in my work. anti-nuclear work, anti-war work. And I went through a period where I thought, 
that it was curtains for us all. I saw no way to find hope, and I didn't know how to live without hope. This was back in the 70s. And uh, I came through that thanks to a kind of amazing group encounter I had teaching a seminar at Notre Dame. And I wrote about it. And as I wrote about it, it was the article was published. And it was published, I said, what we, we need to look at our despair. We need to not be ashamed of our anger and grief and fear. Because uh, that is, if we look and if we can see that as the other side of love. So uh, let's, so I wrote about something I called at that point despair work. And, and that article, which appeared in a journal, drew hundreds of letters. All of them, none of them saying, well, you don't tell us how to fix things. No, they didn't, because I didn't tell them how to fix things. I ta talked about how what I was learning about being with grief for my world, not how to fix it. I don't know how to fix it. I don't think you can fix a world. You can just be part of it in as transformed a way as possible. It's, the world's not like a car you can fix. <laughs> and so this, uh, so after publishing this article, or getting it finally published, I was spent a little over a year working in Sri Lanka with a Buddhist-inspired uh, community development movement called Sarvodaya. And when I came back, and then I came back, and on my way back, I went, and if I landed, I landed on the West Coast here, though I was living at the time in Washington. And there was a workshop scheduled for me to teach on this subject. And I, that's when I had this experience with the perfection of wisdom. And I, I think it's uh, quicker if I read it. How are you doing? Good. You doing okay? Are you dying to hear this? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm always, always terrified of boring people. Under the tall redwoods, cars were parking and people were removing bags, bringing them into the lodge, and I wished I were somewhere else. It was late summer, 1980, weeks after my expulsion from Sri Lanka, and I was here at a Quaker conference center in California's Santa Cruz Mountains because I'd been invited to conduct a weekend workshop entitled From Despair to Empowerment. Then I mentioned the next paragraph that I'd written this article. And, and um, so <laughs> the, 
Letters in response to the article had followed me to Sri Lanka, often with requests to bring this despair work in person and guide groups of interested people. Well, I thought, one workshop perhaps, then back to applications for a teaching position. But now that I'd actually arrived to lead a weekend, I wanted to run. What did I have to give these people who were now gathering in the lodge for supper and the first evening session? They may have liked my article, but they would soon discover I had little more to offer. There were several dozen of them, from prosperous-looking professionals to young people in jeans and veteran activists greeting each other. They had cleared a whole weekend to come here and now settled themselves on chairs, sofas, cushions, waiting for things to begin. I sat still for a moment to feel my breathing and let some inner silence happen. There she was just as soon as I thought of her, Prajnaparamita, the mother of all Buddhas. She had inspired me with her bodhisattva teachings ever since I first studied her scriptures. Now she revealed herself as a presence I could lean into, just as she would henceforth, time and time again, whenever I faced a room full of strangers and felt at a loss. Big and invisible, she held me in her lap. She shielded my back. She breathed through me. She was the deep space of our interconnectedness. The hunger of children, the chainsaws in the forest, the reactors, radioactive emissions, the exquisitely precise construction of warheads to incinerate whole cities, those realities were, like her, beyond the reach of our senses. In most of our lives, as in this lovely lodge, we couldn't not see or hear or touch them. Prajnaparamita, our interconnectedness with all beings, was at least as real as the bombs and empty bellies. So I felt her breathing, which coincided with mine, and I settled into the power of her presence. Along with her authority, I now opened to her love for these people, whom she saw as her bodhisattva sons and daughters, and it eclipsed my fear of them. I'm looking for Jennifer. Jennifer wrote a song. A song wrote itself through Jennifer that carries the same experience. The experience 
of being held by the sacred source of life that is in all faiths, or many of them. As I walk around the Angela Center here in Ursula Hall, I see Madonna and child in paintings in a statue. And I find myself looking at them, seeing how the Buddha and Subhutu and those talking in the scriptures of the Prajnaparamita would nod and say, that's how you are held. That is how you are held in the abundance and compassion and clarity of the uh, mother of it all. And so we can imagine that you're singing about the perfection of wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.